Okay, well, uh, glad, good to see you today. Um, you know, it's through things off a little bit last week since we didn't meet, uh, but we're we're back at it. So there'll be, Lord willing, no more interruptions until uh, the end here. Today we're going to be looking at the Gospels and talking about how do how do we interpret how do we understand the Gospels. <clears throat> but let me get us started in prayer first. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this morning hour that we can come together and study your word. Help us as we seek to understand it correctly, Lord. We want to be good stewards of it. We want to know it rightly, Father. So I pray that uh, all of these principles and the things that we talk about will be helpful um, to this group and we can uh, incorporate it in our own life and always continue to grow and learn more of how to do it. So please keep our eyes focused on you, Lord Jesus, and continue to um, give us the grace to do that. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, so the last um, couple times you've heard from Jamar and John, um, and, and they've helped us understand the process of inductive Bible study and just some principles around that. Now we're going to be able to go more specifically and pulling from those different elements that they talked about <coughs> and applying them um, to different types of genre. Today it's going to be the Gospels. So as we begin the process of Bible study, one of the first questions you're, you're doing after you've prayed and read the passage, um, and, and even as you're reading the passages, you're starting with identifying what kind of genre it is. So you're not, study, you're not starting with a word study. You're not studying, you're not starting with, uh, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of ways you could start, but, but you're starting with identifying what kind of genre it is. So just by way of review, um, does anybody remember some of the different kinds of genre? Poetry. Poetry, okay, yep, that's one. What else? So even, even thinking more broadly than that, than just the Bible, th think about you know, the, all the things you read in life, whether it's the newspaper, whether it's books. What are some differences in those types of things that you read? Or do you read them all the same way? Do you read poetry the same way you read the front page of the newspaper? Why not? Whimsical or um, fiction or I don't know. I don't know. Just don't. It's not news. It's not reality. It's not what's happening right now, typically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, I mean, just imagine a, you know, if you, if there was like a Valentine's thing or whatever and it, roses are sweet, violets are, how's that go? Roses are red, violets are blue. <clears throat> Well, not that one, but but think of like a Valentine's card. Is like you know you're sweeter than honey. Does anybody think that that's supposed to be taken literally? Like we're trying to somehow measure the sweetness of honey, and then looking at trying to measure our love. Is that what that language is trying to communicate? No, of course not. It's this this poetic language, right? So we're using, you know, figures of speech and, and we're saying things to, to make a point. We're, not everything in there is, is to be taken. Um, it's all true, but, but it's not to be interpreted in the same way that you would read the front page of a newspaper. So 
it, you know, when, when we read something in the Psalms that says God is our rock, we don't think of God as a literal rock. Okay, the imagery that's supposed to come to mind is God is, is unmovable. He's strong. Okay, so sometimes, you know, people will say, well, I read the Bible literally. No, you don't. Because <laughs> if you do, you'd be off in loony land, right? Now, there are some things that we do, but we read it in the sense that it's written. And so that's why it's important to know what kind of genre we're talking about. Because if you start reading poetry the same way you read the epistles, like you're going to be a theological train wreck. So there's different rules that apply to different types of genre. And so, you know, when it comes to apocalyptic, um, the, the genre of apocalyptic, say Ezekiel or Revelation, you kind of wonder, like, why are there so many different interpretations or positions on that? Because it, it plays out in the way that we understand and view that type of genre. So in order to, to help you, um, we're going to talk about the, quote, rules, or just the guidelines for each type of genre. So that's what we're going to go through. We'll talk about the Gospels. Next week, it'll be the Epistles. Uh, we'll be looking at poetry. We'll be looking at Old Testament you know, the Old Testament law, um, some different specific types like that. So we, we need to be able to differentiate the types of genre. So the New Testament has how many Gospels? Four. Great. Okay. Um, and did you know that the early church added Gospel uh, to the title there? You know, so the Gospel according to St. Matthew, the Gospel according to that. There's, there's only one Gospel but, but they added that title, the Gospel of, because they were trying to communicate there's four perspectives on that one Gospel. It doesn't change any of the truths about the Gospel, but we have you know, a slightly different vantage point of looking at the Gospel. It's like if you have a diamond. Any of you ladies have a diamond ring? You hold that up to the light, and you know, it's, it's like you can look at it through a little bit different ways. It's still that diamond, but there's some different ways in which to view that. And that's what we're talking about, the, the Gospels right there. Um, so the Gospels, you know, what kind of literature are they? Well, they're mostly biography. They're, they're written in a narrative style. But there's many other elements that we need to be aware of as you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, such as parables. How, what do we do when we get to a parable? You're going to read that slightly different than you do a narrative. Or figures of speech. We, we want to be aware of those. So if you, if you notice, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those seem to be pretty similar to each other. Agreed? I mean, the stories are, are pretty much the same. There's some slight differences in that. Some have more. You know, Mark's has got a very shortened version of things. But those, those types are, are very similar to each other. But then you have the Gospel of John, which in some ways seems pretty different. And so the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, Lu and Luke, um, they're devoting about a third of that to the final week of Jesus. But the Gospel of John, it's about 42%. So almost half of John is about the last week of Christ. So there's some, you're going to see a lot more in John that you're not going to get in some of those other Gospels. So we could say that the Gospels are really uh, passion narratives with extended introductions. So that's what the Gospels are. Think of these as this last week narrative with a big, long introduction. In some cases, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
it's a pretty big introduction. In the case of John, it's about half the book, but, but that's really what they are. So let's walk through. Uh, we're going to look at about 11 um, principles for interpreting the Gospels. So first, in the Gospels, remember to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. So these are not exactly biographies of Jesus. Um, they're really intentional. They're highlighting some of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. So Sinclair Ferguson says this, it's a basic but neglected truth when it comes to reading the Gospels. When you're reading the Gospels, don't lose sight of Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. You might think that would be hard to do, right? How do you lose sight of Jesus? But we'll talk about some ways that we actually do, we actually could do that. So let's just take one. Um, so in other words, that helps us guard against this idea of reading the passage. And then the first question being, what does this passage tell me about me? Or we might be tempted to think, who am I like in the story? Instead, the first question we should ask is, what does this passage teach us about Jesus? So, so here's a key one that people often make, you know, often uh, perhaps miss this on. And that's the story of the temptation of, of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, it's Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Um, but if you look at that there, and for the, maybe for the sake of time, we won't read through it, um, but it's there in your notes about the temptation of Jesus. What is the key truth that's being taught in that passage? What's, what's the primary purpose of that passage? Is it his dependence on God? Okay. Um, he's being, Jesus is being offered different uh, things, and, and Satan is tempting him with his own power to achieve those things, and yet he either references scripture, which is his father's words, or just, you know, my father's providing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's part of the part of the main point right there, that dependence on God. Mm -hmm. So, Ellen? It shows he's fully God and fully man. Yeah, okay, good. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, so, so often this gets turned into, here's how to fight temptation like Jesus did type of a lesson. That's not why it was put in Matthew, and it's not why it was put in Luke. The, the point of it was, is that um, unlike Adam, unlike the first Israel, Jesus is the faithful son of God. So Adam, if you remember him, the son of God, was tempted in the wilderness. And, and what happens to Adam? Succeed or fail? Fails. We have the second Adam tested in the garden, tempted in the garden, uh, in the wilderness. Uh, well, actually before that, even Israel so this language of son of God, it's applied to Israel. What happens to Israel in the, in the wilderness? Pass, fail? fail, fail, okay. So Adam fails, Israel fails. Now we have uh, Jesus, the eternal son of God um, in the flesh. He's gone through the waters of baptism. He's led out into the wilderness for 40 days and nights. That brings back to mind this Israelite 
brings back to mind the Israelites, right? And, and so Jesus, uh, unlike the Israelites, doesn't fail. Unlike the first Adam, doesn't fail. So the main point of the text is pointing toward Jesus and his success, not this is what you do as a believer in order to fight temptation. That's, that's an application from it. That's secondary, but not primary. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. We see that we have reasons to glorify him um, because he's the faithful and obedient son. He endured temptation and didn't sin. We are more like Adam and Israel who have disobeyed and failed. We're not the heroes of the story. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But where we've been tempted and given into sin, Jesus has not. So when you read any passage in the Gospels, make sure you take careful note of some of these key things right here included in your notes. What Jesus did, what Jesus taught, who Jesus is, and what it means to be his disciple. So, Jesus is the same um, yesterday, during his earthly ministry, today, since his resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. Uh, and not only today, but tomorrow and for all eternity. So, what Jesus is in any of the gospel narratives, he always is. So we keep our eyes on Jesus. So don't miss the, the whole point of the story, Jesus, for some secondary issue. Any questions about that? Okay. Our second point is interpret the Gospels as history. Interpret them as history. So that seems pretty obvious, but we can often miss it. So when we read the Bible's accounts of these stories, those really happened. These are historical events. Jesus really walked on water. Jesus really turned the water into wine. Jesus really healed the blind man or uh, made the lame man walk or, or raised the dead to life. Those really happened. Sometimes in our, our Bible studies, we too quickly jump to the spiritual application and we miss the fact that God has acted miraculously in human history. So as we remember these are historical events, this, this, again, applies to even outside the Gospels. So any of the Old Testament narratives, for example, such as the crossing of the Red Sea, Exodus 15, where Moses says, Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds, glorious deeds, doing wonders? So the Bible is full of these amazing, awesome works of God that are real. The flooding of the earth, the crossing of the Red Sea, the sun standing still, Jesus turning water into wine, the resurrection of Jesus. Those are all historical events. So uh, let's take a look at the resurrection from Matthew 28. Um, can somebody read those verses there in your notes? Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, and came and rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became terrified. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and... Behold, he is, 
going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So, brothers and sisters, this really happened. This, this really happened. Now, why does it matter that this really happened? What, what if this was just an allegory of how the church rose to life after Jesus' death? Why does it matter if this happened or not? But what if what if he didn't? What if it what if it's just an allegory, you know, of a, a picture of the symbolic, like the spiritual picture of something of of how we're risen to new life, but but it never really happened. Well, if that would be the case, then Paul would have been right in writing when he said, Well, if Jesus didn't die, then all of this is useless. All this we don't need to talk about this anymore. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So it was pretty common um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was kind of a big theological battle within the church where people were trying, Christ, quote, Christians were trying to actually save Christianity from itself. And they began to believe that uh, nobody really believes this kind of stuff anymore. Only like, come on, a guy rising from the dead, like that just doesn't happen. It's not scientifically possible. So what they tried to do was take the route of, well, it's not about the historic, you know, the historicity of the event. It's more about the spiritual importance of that. You know, if it happened or didn't happen, who cares? Just the main point is the spiritual significance of that. But you see the problem with that, right? If this actually didn't happen as a historical event, we have nothing for our Christian faith. So we, we don't want to, um, so it matters that these historical events truly did happen. And, and those things encourage us today. So in other words, if the God who calms the storms in the time of Jesus, if he does that, he's still the same God today who can help you, you know, in the midst of your struggles and trials and, and everything you have going on. But if, if those events really didn't happen, how can you have any certainty that he will actually help you? You can't. So these are historical events. Now, but that connects us to point number three. So try to um, just hang with me because what I say at first might be a little controversial. So recognize that not everything recorded in a history should be understood as historical. So recognize that not everything included in a history should be understood as historical. So you might be looking at me a little bit funny, thinking that I'm telling you part of the Bible's not true. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is sometimes right in the middle of a, uh, a historical passage or a narrative, we have a, a made-up story called a parable. So let's take a look at Luke 10, 29 to 37, for example. And so this is the, so there's, um, 
we've we've had this narrative going on here. I mean, uh, Luke has been telling us of what Jesus has been doing, how he's been rejoicing in the Father's will. Right in verses 25 to 28, there's a, a lawyer that's testing Jesus. He's trying to trip Jesus up, and uh, Jesus responds very rightly to him. And well, and, and so he's, he's asking Jesus this question: um, What do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks him, "What's the law say?" He responds. Love the Lord with all your God, God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors as yourself. Jesus says, "You've answered correctly. Do this and live." But the the man wants to justify himself. He wants to really show that I think I've been doing that. I, I think I'm good there. And so he he's trying to maybe get around some things. So we ask Jesus, "Well, okay, let's let's be technical here. Who's my neighbor?" So that was a real conversation that happened in a real point in history. But starting from verse 30, the story that Jesus tells through verse 37 is a made-up story. It's not a historical event. Jesus told it, but that event didn't actually happen. Okay, It's, it's what we call a parable. And we'll talk a little bit more about parables later. But, but as you're reading these you know, narratives... Just keep that in mind, that there's going to be some instances where stories are told that are stories, and they're going to have a point, but they're not actually historical. Does that point make sense? Yeah. Okay. One thing that we don't miss in this parable, uh, there was a debate at the time exactly what it meant by neighbor, because the Hebrew for neighbor and the Hebrew for spouse are spelled the same without vowels. <laughs> So was it really saying, love your neighbor as yourself or love your spouse as yourself? And I think this guy was trying to bring out to Jesus what does it really, which is it doesn't mean, and Jesus told him what you meant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's something we miss. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so fourth, again, related to this idea of the history part of it, um, remember that not everything in a history or a narrative is supposed to be uh, a, a prescription to do or to follow. So uh, we need to distinguish between prescription versus description. Okay, so if you're if you're reading the Gospels, or if you're reading Acts, or if you're even if you're reading the Old Testament, you know narratives. Just remember, there's a difference between the two of those. Prescriptive is what. If something is prescriptive, what do you? What's that mean? Something you should do. There you go. Yep. And if it's descriptive, what's that meaning? Yeah, it's just it's being told about, right? So if you take everything that you read in a narrative as prescriptive, you won't be here next week. You'll be like Judas. You went and hung yourself. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of things you'd be doing that we'd be like, we'd probably have to get you out of jail or something. So just because something's described doesn't mean that it's something we're called to do. And we have to recognize the difference between those two things. Um, so... Take uh, Matthew 14, for example. Can someone read that for us there in your notes? But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of the Lord danced before the company and pleased Herod. 
Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and had his head, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Okay, so a couple questions. Did that story really happen? Okay, good. Was it was it just? Was it was it right? Was it good? Okay, good. So what people do in narratives is not always a good example for us. <laughs> That's important to, to understand. Sometimes it's the opposite. So how do we know if we're reading a positive or a negative example? Okay, so Ellen, how, how do you take this right here? Because we don't have any context to say that, you know, the narrator doesn't add anything, like don't do it, do it. Uh, you know, we don't have any red letters of Jesus that say do this, don't do this. It's it's just kind of there. So how, how would we know if we should uh, or shouldn't? Well, scripture says don't murder. Okay. So obviously that was, you know, she pre-thought. Okay. Good. It also commands us to love. Do you love somebody by wiping their head off? <laughs> Yeah, so we're pulling in from other passages of Scripture that would give us teachings or understandings of it, right? So we have to read the whole Bible. You know, if you're only reading, uh, I mean, the, the long end of Mark talks about handling serpents and drinking deadly poison. That's kind of where the charismatics run with that, right? Why don't we practice that? Well, we, we're looking at that kind of in a broader, broader context and saying, no, we don't believe that those things are, are being taught or commanded for us to do, right? So we, we consider the whole Bible as a whole and, and not just one tiny little part of it. Sometimes the narrator is going to tell us. He'll make a comment. Other times, you know, we have to really ask that question. Is this something God is wanting me to do? Or maybe it's this something God's wanting me not to do. So, and that fits into point number five. Not everything in a history or a narrative is explained, but look for any comments of the author. That's, um, you see that frequently in the Old Testament, uh, for example. Um, like in Judges uh, 14, it's talking about Samson. And there in that case, um, he's tearing apart the lion. And the, the narrator there doesn't tell us, uh, like he doesn't tell his mom or dad what happened. And then he goes back um, to the lion. Uh, later on, he's, you know, the lion's there, some bees have built a nest in it. He's taking the honey, he's eating of the honey. And again, it, the narrator mentions he doesn't tell his mom or dad what he's done. And so why doesn't Samson tell his mom and dad what he did? Why didn't he tell them that he went to a dead lion and got the honey out of it? Weren't you supposed to not be around anything that hadn't been killed by another beast or something? Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So he would have he would it would have violated his Nazarite vow being set apart from the Lord. And, and the point the narrator is trying to make is look at the choices Samson is making that are continuing to distance himself from God. He's doing this, he's doing this, he's doing this, and that's just one of those. So it's, 
it's, it's not something that's like directly stated there, like do not eat honey from the body of a lion, okay? But the author puts comments in there like that for us to think like, hmm, good thing, bad thing. No, it doesn't seem to be a good thing here. So we, we need to look for those comments. Uh, in, the, in the Gospels, for example, let's take a look at Mark 17, 9, or 7, 19. Mark 7, 19, for example. Um, someone able to read that for us, please? Mark 7, 19. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Yeah, so notice there in your Bibles, you probably have that with the brackets around it, that last part. Thus he declared all foods clean. That is a really, really huge point that Mark is making right here. You know, so it's put in there, but, but the theological significance of that is incredible. So Jesus is, is coming, and no longer there's this clean-unclean kind of a thing. It's the bringing together of the Jews and Gentiles. I mean, that's a huge statement. But you, you might not know that if, if Mark hadn't put that in there. So we want to uh, look for um, comments. Um, John, it, you know, if you read through John's gospel, John does a lot of this. So, so John will add, like, these little phrases to help explain things, like customs, um, when you get to John 4, uh, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, Jesus put, uh, John puts a lot of that in there. Well, Jews don't normally have dealings with the Samaritans. You know, and again, your Bible puts that in, in brackets. It's like John is giving us these comments so that we can, we can think about, wow, this is important. So be looking for those. Any questions on that? Okay. Uh, six, when you're reading a passage in the Gospels that has a parallel passage, compare it with the others and note the similarities and differences. So first question for you, how would you know if a passage you're reading has a parallel passage in another Gospel? How would you know that? You look at the notes. <laughs> it, might have, it might have that one also included. Okay, so where are the notes at, Kay? They're different in every Bible. They're usually at the bottom. Sometimes they can be off to the side. So it's just... Yep. Just, just take it another step further. Read it again. Mm-hmm. So any, does, just raise your hand if your Bible has some kind of way of, whether on the side or the bottom, of like showing you where verses are also found or where to look. So that's, that's a really important part of your Bible study because um, you're, as Jamar mentioned, you know, you're trying to see where, where else you'll go with this. And so if this is an account mentioned in Matthew and it's also an account mentioned in Luke, read both of those to see the similarities and differences between the two stories. Like what's, what's the same, what's not there, what's added? So, for example, I mentioned one this morning um, of the, 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 the sheep. This account is in uh, Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14, and in Luke 15, 4 to 7. So Jesus is teaching us about the lost sheep. Um, but there's a difference in those two accounts. So, like I mentioned, um, in Luke's account, it's referred to as the lost sheep, so Luke, if you know Luke, he has a concern for the outsiders, the Gentiles. And so by using this language of lost, 
that's what he's really trying to emphasize is, is like the father goes after, after the lost sheep, even the Gentiles. In the context of Matthew, Matthew doesn't use lost. Matthew uses wandering. So the, the, where it's at in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, it's, it's a pastoral um, concern. Look for the wandering sheep. Okay, so same story, a little bit different emphasis right there. So reading the two accounts can, you know, you can note the similarities and the differences. Any questions on that? Comments? Okay. Uh, seventh, all histories and narratives are incomplete, but yet they're fully reliable. So what we mean by that is the Bible's histories don't pretend to be exhaustive. Just as Tyson mentioned today, even at the end of John, if everything were written down that Jesus said and did, the world itself couldn't contain all the books. <laughs> so nobody pretends like that's all that happened in that account. You know, the words that you see, no one's saying that that's the only thing Jesus or whoever said, but, but it's a summary of it, right? It's at least some of what they said. So they're, they're not, you know, the Gospels are not written to answer all of our theological questions. They have a very particular, specific, and limited purpose, and they're dealing with certain issues, leaving others to be dealt with elsewhere. Okay, so if you read Matthew, if you read Mark, Luke, or John, if you have a study Bible, and the study Bible will help you understand the purpose why that Gospel is being written. So the purpose of Matthew is a little bit different than Luke, a little bit different than Mark, a little bit different than John. Okay, and, and study Bibles can help you understand that. So if you think of Mark as like, Mark's about discipleship. So Mark's approach is like, I'm gonna just take out a lot of things and just really distill it down, boil it down to the, the most basic form. What's it look like to follow Jesus? That's how he presents it. Matthew, writing to more of a Jewish audience, is showing how Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be using a lot of Old Testament uh, scripture to, to prove that. Luke is writing to a mixed audience, a lot of Gentiles. He's showing how Gentiles are included. So it makes sense, right? Like each, each author has a slightly different group in mind. And by understanding that, you can understand why they maybe go into more detail about one thing and, and not so much the other part of it. So, but anyways, we don't have to fear that we're missing out on something that the author left out. So I'd love to hear, you know, why did the Ninevites in the Old Testament, why did they just respond to the preaching of Jonah? And, but yet why in just a few years they go to invade Israel again? Or what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? I'd really like to know that. Or Melchizedek. Boy, tell me more about that guy. I mean, how did Abraham know him? Why is he so prominent in Hebrews if we don't see much of him in Genesis? But again, if it's not in the text, God didn't think that that was something that we needed. So commentaries can be wrong. Archaeological discoveries can be misleading. But the Bible is completely reliable. And then secondly, there's no disposable passages of Scripture. So we've got some genealogies here in Matthew and in Luke. And, and that can be some tough sledding, at least especially the Old Testament ones. But every passage is there for a reason. They don't have the, you know, the same concentration of insight that like Romans 8 would have. 
But again, they're, they're there to, to tell us something, so we can't dispose of them. So as we approach the Gospels, we, we just need to understand that God has put in there what we needed to know, not necessarily what we want to know. So there's going to be some incompleteness, but if we needed it, God would have put it in there. Eighth, histories and narratives often illustrate, but don't, le- don't directly teach doctrine. So some, can someone read to us um, verses uh, from Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17, please? The Jews came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and come to rest on him. And behold, a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Thank you. So we have in there an illustration of the Trinity, but it's not a big theological explicit teaching on the Trinity. We have a historical event in the baptism. It's captured in narrative form, uh, but the theological significance and the implications go unstated. So the, the point of this is to show how Jesus has fulfilled everything that's needed for all righteousness. So we, we see in there, um, we see the work of the Trinity in there, but it's not like it's directly taught. So histories and, and narratives, they, um, they illustrate some of these theological doctrines, but they often don't directly teach theological doctrines. And next week as we look at the epistles, we'll see that that's where you have a lot of teaching, uh, of direct, direct teaching of doctrine. So in other words, you know, if you were to read this narrative account right there, and, and if you were to think, wow, the, whole, uh, the, the Holy Spirit is a dove. That's what Jesus is trying to teach. The Holy Spirit is a dove. It'd be like, no, you missed the point of that, okay? That's, this is what happened in the story, but that's not what was meant to be taught. And even as we think about the parables, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but people fall into error in some of those ways with that. Okay, ninth, um, as you're reading the Gospels, it's important to understand what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God. Because that, that theme is all throughout the Gospels. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And, and what, what we mean by that is not an earthly kingdom. We mean it's His reign and rule. So people got so, you know, the, the disciples, the, uh, the Jews at that time, they got so tripped up because they thought the kingdom of God was an earthly rule. But it's, 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 the, it's the reign and the rule of God. So the Gospels help us to understand that the kingdom of God is already here in the person and work of Jesus, but it's not fully here. There's an aspect of that that's still to come. And so the kingdom is already, but there's a part of it that's not yet. And there's a tension between the two of these things. Already Jesus has come. Already Jesus is fulfilling his promises. Oh, but there's a not yet part of that that we're still waiting for. I think the best way to illustrate that is thinking of the examples of D-Day and V-Day. Uh, some of you better, better than me can um, you know, think back on that and remember D-Day. 
the invasion of Normandy, um, the victory there, that was the turning point of World War II. But the war wasn't over following D-Day. Victory didn't come until uh, V-Day. So as Christians, we are living in between D-Day, which was the cross, and V-Day, when Christ will return and fully consummate all his promises. And, there, and there's a tension there, right? It helps us to be realistic about what, what's been fulfilled, what's not being fulfilled, the struggles that we're having. And if you miss out on what that is, you'll, you can get confused in a number of ways. That's probably a separate discussion. But anyways, the point being is we want to understand what the kingdom of God is. Now, number 10 is, is I love number 10, looking beyond individual stories to series of stories. So as you read the Gospels, the Gospels don't necessarily put everything in time order. So just because you read John, for example, or Luke, for example, doesn't mean necessarily that that's the order in time in which everything happened. In many cases, sure, but there's no rule that says the Gospel writers can't put things out of order as part of their point. Now, we as Americans would say, no, you can't do that. You have to keep everything in chronological time order, but that's our rule. That's not their rule. Okay, so they can put things out of order to to show the point. So let's take a look at um, Matthew eight, starting in verse twenty three through chapter nine eight. So Matthew twenty three. And so here in Matthew 23, we have Jesus addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, and then he's lamenting. Um, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. It's Matthew 8, not, not 23. Matthew 8. Why am I in Matthew 23? I don't know. So, okay, so you have, uh, in Matthew 8, you have Jesus uh, cleansing the leper. You have the faith of the centurion, so healing right here. You have these stories of, of Jesus healing people. You have him calming a storm, verses 23 to 27. You have him healing the demons in verses 28 to um, 34. And he's healing a paralyzed man in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. So there's three stories in there. Uh, the calming of the storm in verses 23 to 27. His, uh, like the, the demon story, verses 28 to 34. And then healing the paralyzed man. Okay, so that's not to say that those stories happened in that particular order in time. But Matthew puts those together in that order because he's making a point. So before I explain what the point is, let me tell you why Matthew's doing that. Imagine, um, how many of you remember Michael Jordan? Okay. So if, if I just told you Michael Jordan was the greatest NBA player there was, uh, you know, and I gave you some statistics about him, you might not be convinced. You might begin to think, well, I think LeBron James is better. But... If I started telling you about some of Michael Jordan's games, where there was this one game and Michael Jordan had the flu and his teammates were just messing up and like just blowing it, 
And it was like Jordan to the rescue. I mean, the guy has the flu and he pushes through it. He scores like 45 points, Bulls win. Or maybe I tell you another story. Um, you know, it kind of all comes down to the clutch, like last game to the playoffs and Bulls have the ball. It's like, who do you go with it? Michael Jordan. And he just is able to get the game winning shot off, right? So there's stories like that, that if I tell you that, you can say, yeah, I can see that. By you telling that story, you've proved the point. You know, Michael Jordan is the greatest NBA player. That's it, a little bit different than just giving you some facts. So Matthew could have just given us, Matthew could have just said, Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has authority over the demons. Jesus has authority over sin and sickness. But instead of just giving us facts, Matthew tells these stories to really show that, right? Uh, stories have a different way, a very unique way of showing us these points. So stories make better points than just mere facts do. So these stories are, are often put in a, they have a particular place in the Gospels, and, and they're making a point. So what, the big question you're asking is, how does this story I'm reading, how does it fit in with the point that the author, whoever is writing that gospel, is trying to make? Let me, let me show you one more example so you can understand what I mean. Uh, turn to Luke, if you will. Luke uh, 9. Mark, I'm sorry, Mark, Mark 9. Mark, Mark 8, not 9, Mark 8. Uh, can somebody read to us Mark 8, 22 to 26? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Why the two-stage healing here in, in uh, Mark? Very unique. This is, I think, the only account we mentioned of a, that we see of a two-stage healing. It's not instantaneous. What, what's up with this? It's for us. Our answers don't always come totally the, the, the first time, but with continued prayer, etc., answers do eventually come. Okay. Okay. Shows the power of Christ. He's patient enough to, you know, can you see yet? Can you see yet? And he's patient with us. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit concerned here. I'm just wondering if Jesus' power is getting a little low. Like, maybe he needs to take a nap or go to the recharger. You know, he's like, is he running at like 50%? He's only able to, to kind of do it halfway. And then it's like, oh, man, that didn't work. I better try it again. I, got, I was like, ooh, this makes me a little uncomfortable here. So I want to help us understand why this two-stage healing fits in here. Uh, to do that, I'm going to teach you a really cool word. Not that you would ever actually need to use this word, but 
I'd love for you to go here and try to incorporate it in some kind of a conversation this week and then tell me, tell me uh, how that goes. Like, it, so this word is called pericope. Okay, pericope. <clears throat> Yeah. Oh, now now you're asking you're asking a miracle there. All all that means is story. Okay, but pericope, but it sounds really cool. So Tyler, you know, go uh, to to Jen tonight, and she'll be like, "What'd you guys talk about?" Oh, we talked about the pericope of um, <laughs> the two stage healing. Whoa. <laughs> no, it's a fun word to use. But this, this story is in here, but to understand it, we have to look at what comes before this and what comes after this. So before this, uh, Jesus has healed the deaf man, okay, back in chapter 7. So there we have a one-stage healing right there where this man is, is healed. Then we lead it, it leads us into the feeding of the 5,000, but the disciples uh, in verses 14 to um, 21 are, are struggling. There's this, this deafness, this blindness that the disciples have. Like, who is Jesus here? It's like they don't even get it, right? Like they've seen this great miracle. They've seen Jesus do this. And, and they're still confused. Like, is Jesus talking about physical bread? And Jesus is like, oh, guys, <laughs> how many times do we have to go over this? And then, but then if you go past the story that we just talked, the pericope about the two-stage healing, we have Peter's great confession of Christ. So uh, Mark puts this story in here to make the point the disciples are like this blind man. There's, there's some things they're seeing, but there's some things they're still blind to. So there's this sight that still needs to happen. Okay, so that helps us understand why this particular two-stage healing here is Mark's making the point that, yeah, the disciples are actually still blind. Okay, but, but that's, you know, to be able to understand that, we're asking the bigger question, how does it fit in with the stories going on uh, around it? Does that make sense? Maybe not, but at least to some degree. Well, let's, so the last one then is parables. Um, so parables are those made-up stories that have at least a point or points in them uh, that are teaching us a lesson. So we don't want to overinterpret parables. We don't want to assume that the stories in a parable are historical. One of the places that that happens often is uh, the story of Lazarus. Um, the, the rich man and the, the poor man. And so the man in the story is given a name, Lazarus, but, but that's a parable. That's not a real historical story. And people start thinking, oh, boy, this teaches us about life after death, these two compartments and conversations that are happening and things like that. And it's like, no, 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 this is a parable. That it's not meant to provide us with the doctrine of hell or heaven, right? It's it's making a point, okay? So understanding that you know you can't press the meaning of a parable too much. Uh, so why did the prodigal son, uh, you know, what what was he doing and when he ran away and, and asking all kinds of questions about that? It's like that doesn't matter. We're not told that. Or the parable of the servant who got himself into the unpayable debt with the king. Well, why did the guy keep letting him borrow the money? 
how did he get that far? That's not the point, right? Or people will um, just try to press things way too far. And so parables have at least one point. They may have a couple points, but you can't press the details too much. It'd be like me telling you a story, Kay, just making it up. And then you're like asking me all those questions like, well, what color clothes did he have on? Uh, why was he walking so fast? It's a story. I made it up. I don't, I don't know. It's, that's not the point of it, right? So we don't want to do that to parables. We also don't want to propose allegorical meanings that aren't anchored to the text. So uh, Augustine does this with um, the story of the uh, there in Luke 10 um, about the Good Samaritan. I think I put that in your notes, right? And you can see all the wacky places he goes with this. So he says, you know, the man going down to Jerusalem to Jericho. Oh, that's, um, we'll just allegorize that. That's Adam he's talking about. The heavenly city of peace from, you know, Jerusalem. Oh, well, that's the heavenly city, city of peace. Oh, Jericho, well that, well, that symbolizes the moon. You know, it's like, what in the world? <laughs> you, you can go anywhere you want if you view the Bible with that kind of interpretation. So we can't, you know, turn everything into this crazy allegory right there. So just a couple, a couple points, you know, as you think about um, parables, try to discern the main point or points. Pay attention to the historical and literary context, the setting. So as Jesus is telling these parables, there's, there's a setting in which it happens. You know, there's something going on. So what is it that's going on that Jesus is, is, is discussing there? Recognize common symbols. And then try to translate the main point into your own context. There's a, a really cool, um, I'll have to share it with you, kind of a, a place that turns parables into like modern day parables. So you can see like biblical parables, what would be maybe the modern day equivalent of some of these things. And it can be helpful because we lose, a, we just don't understand the parables, at least in a lot of ways. So even thinking about the parable of the prodigal son to end things, uh, that's a good story of, or a good example of how we can you know, properly interpret a parable. So there's a couple cultural, historical aspects that we want to be aware of as modern readers. So if you're reading like the parable of uh, the prodigal son, you, you want to understand that this is happening in a different context, in a different culture. It's not a Western culture. So how do you understand a different culture? There's some books um, like Reading Jesus. I think it's Reading Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, a, a book like that that can help you understand a Middle Eastern culture because it's different. Th there are shame-honor cultures. There's just different things in there that we aren't going to be aware of. So, for example, when the son says, give me, uh, give me my share of the estate, that would have been interpreted as a death wish for the father. The elder brother in that situation, he would have been expected to do all he could to reconcile the brother with the father. But not only does he fail to do that, he also accepts his share of the inheritance. In other words, from the very beginning of the story, the older brother is put in a bad light. He shares in the sin of his younger brother and gives us a better perspective to understand his anger at the end of the story. And then when we read, and you, you probably know this, about the father running to meet the younger son, we just view that as an expression of joy. But in, in the Middle East, um, especially in rural areas, a mature man was expected to uh, 
walk slowly and with dignity. It was likely the father in the parable runs to protect his son from children in the town who might decide to meet him with stones. In doing that, the father humbles himself and becomes a powerful picture of the God of grace. So it doesn't change the meaning of the parable, but it helps us appreciate it, helps us understand it uh, to more detail. So try to understand the cultural aspects, the history of this, and then thinking about the immediate context in which it's written. So again, this is the third parable in a series of three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. These three parables are forming a unit. And so the first two are critical to understand the third one. So the thread between the parables um, is about the Pharisees and the lost sheep. The, um, you know, there's rejoicing when the sinner repents, but the Pharisees are not, uh, they're not reacting positively to it. Uh, the, there's a parable about the lost coin, but the Pharisees are still not um, reacting negatively to this. But then you get to the third parable, the lost son, and now the Pharisees get very negative about it. Okay, so the first two, they're like, okay, okay. And now the third one is like, oh, no, they're, they're pretty ticked off right there. Because the detail about the older brother is that he represents the Pharisees. So it's pretty personal now, right? So the, the main point of those three parables is not about rejoicing. Uh, the main point about the third parable, the lost son, is actually not the lost son or the father. The, the focus is on the older brother. So Jesus is um, contrasting how the Pharisees and those in heaven view repentant sinners. And so the main point of that parable is not about the story of somebody who is lost and comes back home. Uh, the main point is to address the attitude of people like the Pharisees who claim to be righteous but aren't righteous at all. So it, it helps us just understand, you know, why is Jesus telling this parable and what, the, what, what is the point that he's trying to make? So those are um, some, you know, maybe some guidelines or helps as you read through the Gospels. Um, just some ways to maybe think about that. Kind of open it here at the last. Any questions um, on any of those things or uh, anything else that you might be thinking of? Okay, so final thing, word studies. So we haven't said much about word studies related to the Gospels. And the reason for that is I think you have to be a little bit careful with word studies when you're doing the Gospels. Um, word studies become really important, especially in the epistles and the letters, because the whole argument can hinge on even the tense of a word. So, so word studies are very important there. But word studies are a little bit less important uh, when you're reading the Gospels because it's more about the bigger picture. It's not about a single word. Okay, so if you're, if you're trying to do Bible study looking for a, you know, the, meaning, the special meaning of a single word in a, in a Gospel account, you're going to go off track. It's, it's not there. Okay, it, you can do word studies. They can be helpful, but you have to be careful how far you go with those. So just final example, if you turn in your Bible to um, John, there at the very end of John, um, Jesus has come back and he's talking to Peter, uh, chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. And it's, it's about this interplay between Peter and Jesus. 
and Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And, and Peter is saying, I love you. You know, yes, I love you. And, and Peter's like really sad that Jesus keeps asking him this. And then finally Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. So this is where word studies can be a little bit dangerous. Um, I've heard, you know, a number of people make a big deal about the usage of two words. So the words for love, and you may have heard this too. Um, there's three words in particular that are used in the Greek for love. Uh, agape, or agape, uh, phileo, and eros. And, and people are like, Jesus is, you know, John is, inter he's using these words, he's using both of these words here. It's like he's using phileo instead of agape. And they make this whole big deal about phileo is a lesser kind of a love. And, and Jesus is like at first, you know, pointing out Peter's lesser kind of a love. And finally he gets to agape in the end. So it's all about, oh, you got to understand these two Greek words, phileo and this very special, unique kind of a love called agape love. So, I got to I got to burst your bubble here. There's nothing special about agape love. It just means love. Okay? The the Greek um, translation of the Old Testament uses that word even in regards to lust. Okay? So there's nothing magical or unique or special about agape love. Okay? It, it's not. And that's not Jesus' point here. Um, I think the, the threefold repetition it, it really goes back to Peter's threefold denial of him, not about some special meaning of agape love. But that's where, you know, if you're not careful, you can get so believing a word is going to be the magical opening to, you know, understanding this. And it's really not the case. We'll talk about that more, you know, word studies and maybe some things to watch out for next week when we talk about the epistles. But that's all the time we have. Thanks for uh, coming today and look forward to seeing you next week.